I don't know how many first-time visitors we may have here with us today, but I know that we have one first-time visitor with us today, and uh, that is that Adam and Leah Braun have brought their newborn son, Darian. It's so good to have you here, and welcome, little boy. We I know another little boy that's really going to enjoy getting to know you, so. I'd like to ask you if you'd open up your Bibles with me to John's Gospel in the third chapter, okay? John chapter 3. And I'm going to read from verses 16 to 21. And this is what we read. Actually, I'm going to just read one verse and comment on it. Then we'll go into the others. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all of your word, and particularly this passage that we're looking at, and I ask you now to make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, perhaps there's no other verse in all the Bible that has served to bring more people to faith than the verse I just read. In John chapter 3, verse 16. I myself am a John 3:16 baby, I'll admit it. Born again in November of 1972, after I flopped open a King James Bible, and it landed in the third chapter of John. I read those first words, the early words of John chapter 3, about Nicodemus being told by Jesus, unless you, unless you uh, are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then I came to John 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, and, and, I, and I understood. That's how it happens. I just understood it. It must have been the Holy Spirit. That, that, how am I born again? How am I born anew? And it's through believing in, in Jesus Christ. Um, I understood that. And a few days later then, I did accept Christ. I accepted him as my Savior. I'd resisted for three years, I'd heard the gospel three years earlier. I'd resisted for three years. And then finally, I accepted Christ as my Savior. It was a tremendous defeat for me. I'd been conquered by the Lamb. And that's never stopped. John 3.16 just brims over with the love of God. It speaks of the intensity and the breadth of God's love. That God so loved the world. It gives overwhelming proof of God's love that he, he gave his only son. And then it names the life-giving result of his love that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, folks, that's a sermon outline right there. But it's not my sermon. 
But I have to comment that for nothing, you know, for its light and its beauty and its goodness, there is nothing quite like John 3.16 because it accurately describes God and his salvation for a perishing world. It's not some, you know, beautifully poetic form of something that isn't as beautiful as the poet. No, it accurately describes God and his salvation to the world. Now, this brings me to the rest of our text and to the title of the sermon, which is, Why Tell Us Everything? You have to tell us everything. And I'm referring to verses 17 to 21. I mean, why couldn't John simply have concluded with verse 16? That's my point. And as I read the passage, I think you'll understand why. It begins with 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in, the, in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that the works have been carried out in God. Now why did God have to tell us this? Why didn't he just stop with John 3.16? For God so loved the world. No one would have complained and no one would ever have raised an eyebrow. Why did he have to continue? Who does not believe in him, whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Why did he have to go on and talk about condemnation and judgment and people living, loving the darkness and hating the light who is Christ? Why did he have to, to do that? You know... <laughs> You preach that evangelistically and people are going to be very upset. And Christians wince themselves. They can wince themselves when they read this passage. They're not, easily, they're not easy verses. They don't receive the attention that John 3.16 does. But what I want to say about these verses this morning is that they are here to reinforce verse 16. They're here to reinforce John 3.16, especially the conclusion. Because it's the conclusion that we, I think, kind of easily can pass right over. As the sermon outline I suggested from the passage. These verses 17 to 21, they don't focus on the, intense, the, the intensity of God's love or on the proof of God's love in giving his only son. They don't focus on the effect of God's love in giving us eternal life. They just don't. But they focus on the end of John 3.16. They focus actually on these words, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And what these verses do is they underscore, honestly, they underscore the urgency of our believing and the reality of, of our perishing, they speak to you. They speak to me. They speak to the whoever in John 3.16. And they're here to teach what I think is an astonishing, an astonishing 
lesson. I mean, this is one of those huge ideas in the Bible. Just like when Jesus told Nicodemus, we saw it last week, when he said to Nicodemus, truly I say to you, unless you're born again or born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That was a huge idea. And that huge idea, if you remember from last week, was that you know, just as you, you could never have entered the world, the world of humanity, unless humanity were already part of you, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless the kingdom of God is already in you now. A true relationship with a living God. That is our accept. Listen to this now. Our acceptance of God determines our destiny. Now, doesn't that sound really odd to you? Especially coming from a good Calvinist. Shouldn't it be that God's acceptance of us determines our destiny? The fact is, they're both. They're both. Both true. So the point still remains. Isn't it remarkable that we read that we must accept God? And the reason that it's here is because this is our issue. God's acceptance of us is his issue. This is our issue. In fact, this is our problem. Verse 18 really nails it. Whoever believes in him, in Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That makes us our problem. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only Son of God. Our problem is that our natural inclination because of sin, our natural inclination is to reject him. Our starting point is to reject Christ. And our starting point is to reject Christ. Our natural inclination is to reject Christ because our natural inclination is to reject God. That's the big idea. We reject Christ because actually we reject God. The issue isn't that Christ is not enough like God for us to accept him. We just rather have God rather than Christ. No, what the scripture says, it's a very huge idea, is that we reject Christ because we reject God. That's our starting position. It's our natural inclination. It's a huge idea. And I want us to think about it this morning, and I want us to think about it in personal terms. So I'm the only person I know better than anybody else, so I'm going to have to draw from that experience. I have to tell you that when I flopped open the Bible to King James, to chapter 3, and came to verse 16, it must, it must have been, again, the Holy Spirit. It must have been, because when I read that verse, I already understood that I was perishing. I was miserable. You know what the word perish means? Actually, it's used in different ways, but I'll just give you one example. It's used of fruit. It's used of apples as they rot. They're perishing. Or bananas. You know, I ate a banana last night to deliver it from mushiness. It was, it was perishing. And I knew that when I read that verse, I knew that the thing I did know is I was perishing on the inside. 
I was constantly rotting and festering and molding on the inside of my life. I understood that. I was miserable. I could not outperform my misery. I got straight A's in college. I could not outparty my, minister, my misery, and I will not describe that. I could not outdefy my misery. I mean, I boasted. I did boast of my atheism. And why couldn't I out whatever my misery? And the reason was because atheism was my misery. It was part of me. It was my natural inclination. It permitted me to live however I wanted to live, to act however I wanted to act. It permitted me to say whatever I felt like saying. But everything that atheism permitted me, it also punctured with misery. Everything. And by atheism, I'm not talking about philosophical atheism or whatever. I'm not talking about something you got to sign up for a class in school in order to study. I am talking about real-life atheism. Real-life atheism. You know, there's one or two ways people can live in this world. They can live for God, they can live for Him, or they can live against Him. There's no other, there's no other ground. And atheists live against God. They do. And don't think, well, you know, Kurt is preaching a sermon against secular people today. Look, religious people are atheists. Lots of, you don't have to be non-religious to be an atheist. You can be a perfectly good religious atheist. You can believe there's a God, but still not live for him, but live against him. Uh, go to church. You can be baptized. You can do all sorts of things but never consult with him, not agree with him. They cannot really worship him. They do not love him because they are real-life atheists, real-life atheists. Now, the thing about atheism, real-life atheism, is that it promises freedom, but the price of that freedom is misery. That's the deal. They promise, it promises freedom, but I'll tell you, the freedom is false because there's a bondage involved in this real-life atheism. And that bondage was very well described by John Piper in this way. That bondage is chains forged in the furnace of our desires, our lusts, what we love and what we hate. And these keep us from drawing near to God. They keep us from it. We're miserable. The price of atheism, the misery, is very real. The promise isn't, but the misery really is. Because the point of atheism, what it points to, the arrow of atheism, the North Star for atheism is that we are all doomed to perish. That's the North Star. We're all doomed to perish like, like a soft tomato that someone's cast onto an anthill. That's the point of atheism, real life atheism. That's the end we see. That's the end we feel. That's what we always know. It's, not, it's always in the back of our minds. If it doesn't slip into the front of our minds several times every day, at that point, uh, dust, death, annihilation, the worm, it punctures everything. 
So did you enjoy your party last night? Did you enjoy your wild time out last night? Wake up. You're doomed. Are you content with your successes? Pop. The pin. Pop. You're doomed. You love your family? The point. Pop. Pop. Doomed. All doomed. Just biological entities to be annihilated by forces beyond their control. Pop, pop, pop. And atheists who say, real life atheists, forget the philosophical stuff this morning. Real life atheists who say, this does not bother me. I really don't care. They are pretending. Because our humanity and our biology because of our humanity and our biology, that cannot be true. It is not true. So why do people live this way? And God's answer is, I'll speak in first person, that when it comes to me, no one is neutral. Everyone is hostile. You know, when I was a real-life atheist, if someone had asked me, do you hate God? This is the truth. I would have been too scared to say yes. Because always in the back of my mind, it was like, well, what if I'm wrong? I don't want to tick him off. And so instead it was, how stupid. There is no God. You see, I, I thought it was safe, safer to settle for mockery than to hate him outright, to mock the very idea, to mock his name. So God sends his very likeness and his very image into the world, Jesus. In the light of God's presence, and love he sends into the world, the person of his son. He sends to us in our stinking condition. He goes so far as to take on himself the condemnation that we deserve and the world watches. And what does the world do? It mocks. How stupid. You're no savior. Now this week, I Googled something I never Googled before. I Googled, I don't like the Mona Lisa. And you know, I just got six hits. In the entire cybersphere, I got six hits. I couldn't believe it. So I did something else. I Googled in, I don't like Swiss cheese. I got 4,670,000 hits. So I'm thinking about publishing a scientific paper on this. Swiss cheese is not as popular as the Mona Lisa. But still, of those who did, those sites that did come up, I do not like the Mona Lisa. This is what one of the bloggers wrote. What is it about her that resonates with us? What is it about her face that makes us want to Photoshop a dog or Miss Piggy onto it? Personally, I don't like the Mona Lisa much. I, would, I wouldn't hang her on my living room wall. 
This is what another blogger wrote. The Mona Lisa is considered by the art world to be a masterpiece. I personally don't see what the big deal is. To me, it's no better than anything else painted in the last 400 years by anyone with a canvas and a few years practice. But there's a refrain among art teachers, critics, masters, if you don't like the Mona Lisa, that's a commentary on your taste in art, not on the quality of the Mona Lisa. You see, John's point is that the world's rejection of Christ is not a commentary on Christ. It's a commentary on the condition of this world and the way this world regards God. It's a commentary on the condition of humanity. The rejection of Christ is as much about hostility against God as it is about hostility against Jesus. It proves, this rejection actually proves the world's need of a savior. The world condemns itself. What was it that the Jews cried when Pilate protested their demand that he be crucified? What did they cry? They cried, his blood be on us and on our children. This rejection proves also that God so loved the world because unless he did, he would never, ever have given his only son to this world. You look with me for a moment at verse 21. The last verse says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's sort of strange language. It involves a Hebrew idiom. Whoever does what is true in the Old Testament refers to someone who, is, who honors God and is faithful to his word. A person who honors God and is faithful to his word does what is true. They're interchangeable. Whoever does what is true, in verse 21, is also whoever believes in him back in 16. John 3, 16, it's exactly the same person it's referring to. And the text is referring in both instances to those who accept Christ as their Savior and Lord. Those who do honor him and faithfully live for him rather than dishonoring him and living against him. They testify that this is because God is in my life. They testify, they come to the light, they testify that any works that come from me because I believe in Christ, any good thing at all is because he is at work in my life. It isn't that they're trying to, uh, I don't know, create an impression or something. I mean, it's not conscious, it's it's. It's just selfless. When people find Christ, it's what they do. They give him glory for the changes in their life and for the reorientation of who they are as a person because it is Christ who is at work in them, 
to will and to do his good pleasure. It's not, you know, gimmicky. It's not just like a claim. It's the reality of what's happening. I want to just say to you, my brothers and sisters, and all of our guests today, God calls us out of our atheism into a true relationship with himself. He calls us out of real-life atheism into a true relationship with himself. He calls us to himself by calling us to his son. And it honestly is true that believing in Christ marks the end of this misery of real-life atheism that I've been talking about. It marks the beginning of the forgiveness of sins that we have so needed. It marks the beginning of life, fellowship with God. This, this is the true grace of God. And it's Christ. Mona Lisa. Let's pray together. At this point, I'd like to actually pray our pastoral prayer, our prayer of intercession first, and then we'll have the song, and then we'll have the supper. Dear Father, as an atheist in recovery, I pray for my fellow atheists. Please be merciful to each one of them as you've been merciful to me. And where they're wrapped up in the turmoil of life that they can't explain and they don't fully understand, I pray that you would cause them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ who has died for their sins and who has risen for their salvation. I pray this for them and that you be tender and merciful to them. I pray that you'd use us, those of us who, have, who know that transition, that transformation, those of us who are in the process to help speak words and be a presence of Christ in their lives. Lord, we do thank you for the saints who've gone before, like Mabel and Gladys. We want to emulate them. Lord, what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 44 was repeated by Paul in Romans 8 that for your sake we, we're led like sheep to the slaughter all day long. Lord, Life can be very hard. Jim Pines passed away this week. We pray for Debbie, his wife, and his family. Annelie Scaletta has lost her brother-in-law, and I believe is now in Belgium at his funeral, just weeks after she lost her dad. Our brother Mike Parent's brother, Joseph, passed on Monday. Cliff Diehouse's wife, Olivia, passed a little over a week ago. We got word that Pastor Terrence's father is not expected to live very long. But Father, we view these things. We pray your comfort and your peace and all the families involved. 
And then we ask ourselves, what shall we say to these things? And we answer, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give to us all things? Who shall bring a charge against against God's elect. It's God who justifies. Who's, going to con- who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate, or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall it be tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, as sword, as it's written? For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And we can be sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we say to these things. Amen.